BibleQuest.tv, the Tuesday edition. I'm glad to be back. I've been away for a couple of weeks. I'm glad to be back with everybody and glad you're joining us in, in our audience. Uh, before we go into that, let me bring in Scott. Hello, Scott, our, our program director. How are you doing, Scott? I'm doing well, Drew. How are you doing? And welcome back from your trip to Italy. Yeah, it was really good. Good to be back. Jonathan, we're good to see you here today. And thank you for filling in on the uh, technical side last week and the recording and everything. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm doing well. It's good to see you guys. Good, good. And Jeff Smeltzer is with us as well, our scholar. I'm going to call you the Greek scholar because I think I've heard something. You wrote a book or something on uh, Ephesians. Okay. Trying to promote your book. A lot of people have written books. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and yes, Scott, that's kind of mocking. <laughs> <laughs> oh, good not, to have not all mocking you. Scott. Not mocking Scott. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Self, self-mocking. Yes. Glad to have you here. Good to be back with you. And if you're coming in on the uh, the uh, Facebook uh, page, we're on Scott's Facebook page today, live. Just click on the, uh, the text box there, comment box, and give us your comments as we proceed through the program. If you're coming in on the Zoom app, click on the uh, chat window box thing or the Q&A box and Type in your answers or questions or comments in those boxes as well. We'll monitor them and get them and start talking about them. And if you want to come in with your audio, there's also an opportunity for those coming in on the Zoom app that you get at BibleQuest.tv. You can also use your computer audio if you'd like to call in and, and talk to us live and give us your question. Okay, with all that said, Scott, uh, last week... Um, it was a great program. I wasn't there, but I did listen to it. It was a great program on the works of the flesh. Where are we going from there? Okay. Well, since we did the works of the flesh, we're going to move on to the fruit of the spirit. So we're in Galatians chapter five, and let's just remind somebody, uh, set it up for us by reading again, verse 16, uh, through 18 to remind us of the general context. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. For these are contrary the one to the other, that you may not do the things that you would. But if you're led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousies, wraths, factions, divisions, parties, envyings, drunkenness, revelings, and such like, of which I forewarn you, even as I did forewarn you, that they who practice such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, meekness, self-control. Against such there is no law. And they that are Christ, Jesus, have crucified the flesh with the passions and the lust thereof. So these things, they, they kind of repel each other. Uh, if you are full of a life of uh, sexual immorality, lasciviousness, enmity, drunkenness, uh, envy, jealousy, wrath, strife, how likely is it that you're going to be a person characterized by love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, etc.? Not a chance. On the other hand, when we really let uh, the, the fruit of the Spirit develop in us, so it really, really in our core, 
is living out love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, meekness, self-control. Is that person going to be the person running around, getting drunk, getting in fights, getting in, uh, uh, in, involved in these different immoralities? No. These, these repel each other. So we're going to move from works of the flesh to fruit of the spirit. Uh, and and uh, just we'll make one point before we get right into that. Um, Jeff pointed this out earlier, so I'll, I'll throw it out there this way. I'm going to give a sentence, and I'm going to ask Jeff to identify three things wrong with this sentence. Today, we're going to be looking at the fruits of the Spirit from the book of Revelations. <laughs> ah. well, well, trivial. Revelations is not Revelations, but it's Revelation. But less trivial, it's not fruits of the Spirit, as if there are various fruits and maybe you'll have one and another person will have another, but it is the fruit, the produce of the Spirit. So the idea is if we're being led by the Spirit, all of these things are going to characterize our lives. See, I told you, Scott, he's the scholar. I, I, didn't, I, didn't, I didn't catch the third thing. I don't know what the third okay. thing is. We're not going to be in the book of Revelations or Revelation. We're going to be in the book of Galatians. Oh, are those no, no, actually there it is plural Galatians. <laughs> all, right, so, all right, so we'll be in the book of Galatians, chapter okay. five, studying the fruit of the spirit. All right. So as we go through these, uh oh, in last week we really appreciated we got back to uh our listeners were giving more comments and more input. Really appreciated that last week, and we want you to do that please again this week. Uh looking Drew, tell them how they can do that. Yeah, well, you do that by clicking on the Q&A button or the um, chat button in the Zoom app window and text in your comments there or on the Facebook page. They just comment it there. All right, look forward to hearing from you. All right, so number one, love. Uh, suppose a person, they want to have the fruit in the spirit of the spirit in their life but they realize that they are not doing a good job with love and they, they want to be more loving. What are some biblical principles, biblical examples that can help them out? Well, I'm going to turn over to second Timothy um, real quickly where it, it says, uh, but know this, that in the last days, grievous times shall come from men shall be lovers of self. You know, Jesus talked about not being able to serve two masters and uh, there's kind of a parallel in the sense that if I love myself, I'm all about what I want. And it's a little bit hard for me to love others because others' needs may compete with my needs. So I need to be less selfish. Yeah. There are some people that certainly need to have more confidence in themselves or yep. stand up for themselves uh, and not feel bad about things that are out of their control. But we, we've had a society which has emphasized self-esteem to selfish people. So you might remember there was a song some years ago, The Greatest Love of All, Whitney Houston saying, was learning to love yourself. <laughs> yeah, well, you know what? People confuse loving self in, in, in the sense of seeing, seeing that God sees value in me and seeing right. the potential for good that I have with doing what I want. Um, those are not the same thing. Right. Maybe that's a distinction we need to. So if I'm a very selfish person, by definition, I'm not going to be a very loving person. I can't 
always put myself first and really be serving other people. Jonathan. Um, love is also, um, maybe the principle is helpful. Um, love is an extremely foundational point in Christianity um, and in just how you treat people. And, and John talks about that in First John. Um, really the whole chapter or the whole book, but uh, especially the chapter in verse or chapter four uh, in verse seven, he kind of starts this logical argument. Uh, he says, beloved, let us know or let us love one another for love is from God and whoever loves has been born of God knows God and anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. And in this, the love of God was made manifest among us that he sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he has loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And then he says, beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Um, and so it's just extremely foundational in a Christian's life. Um, and he goes on to say, we love because he first loved us uh, in verse 19. Um, we love God because he loved us, but we also love other people because God is love and it's his you know, characteristic of God and therefore a characteristic of God's people. And, uh, it's just, it's just extremely foundational, which also dips into what Jeff was saying, um, with yeah. the selflessness. And Jeff, you had another comment. I just gonna make the point, you know, self-loathing is not a good thing, but the people right. that I run into who have the most problem with self-loathing, they have no self-esteem, uh, are often people who also have no self-control and they're not happy with themselves because they just do whatever they want and they end up miserable. Right, right. The, the paradox is that Jesus taught the first shall be last and the last shall be first. A lot of people go through life putting themselves first, thinking it's going to make them happy. You know, you beat that little old lady to the parking spot at Walmart. Yeah, that made your day. No, it didn't. You would be a happier person if you would let that little old lady have that spot. All right, very good. Uh, uh, two more things on this real quick, then we'll move to the next one. Uh, how does, the, in a practical sense, uh, what's the benefit of the golden rule in just practically learning how to love other people? It's a good rule. Yeah. <laughs> you're, you're, you're the master at developing practical explanations. Do that for us. Well, all right. So if I'm sitting here, oh, what would be loving? What, I, I would like to be loving. What would do to other people? What, I get it. I get it. I yeah, get it. It's, it, it involves stop looking at everything from your point of view. Look at it from your neighbor's point of view. Do you know how many people hate their actual next door neighbor? If you're ever on a jury trial, there's a decent chance it's going to be two neighbors. I, I've got a friend of mine. He, he works 911. Uh, and you know what a lot of their calls are? No. Neighbors really, really mad at neighbors over trivial, trivial things. And you can just envision these two people both looking at their property line, their point of view, their design. Look at things from somebody else's point of view. In other words, do unto others as I would have them do unto me. In other words, put myself in their shoes and say, What what if I were in that if I were that person, what would right. I want? What would I what would be good for me? Right. Right. It's always what I would want, but it's what would be good for me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If 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 I become addicted to heroin and I call you guys and say I need money for my next hit, you know what I want, but you also know that's not what I need. Right. All right. Let's move on. Oh, wait a second. Jonathan's got something real quick. Jonathan. Um, and that's just because you started using the language like uh, how your neighbor should feel and how you should feel towards your neighbor. Um, just to bring up really quickly, um, when Jesus is talking about this, sometimes. Uh, going along with the point that you're making about the the golden rule and how to learn how to love better if you're trying to figure that out 
um, that, that kind of is almost putting yourself in the same position as the lawyer in Luke chapter 10, where the lawyer, he knows I'm supposed to love my neighbor as myself, but then he tries to think about all the particulars and the details and, and maybe trying to justify himself uh, or just it's the text says in verse 29, he was desiring to justify himself. And he said, who is my neighbor? And Jesus tells the story of the good Samaritan, which in a way is Jesus telling a very practical story on the golden rule. If you see this guy that's on the side of the road, that's beaten and left for dead. What if you were that guy, (laughs) you know, which one of the people would you want to pass by you? The Levite, the priest or the Samaritan? Well, you would want the Samaritan to pass by you because he helped you out. And so, okay, if you see someone that's in need and, and, you know, in whatever situation, what would you do to them and what would you want them to do to you? Exactly. True. And that was a good example because uh, Jesus used that example. The Samaritans and the Jews, they hated each other. Yeah, so here, here's Jews wouldn't even talk to deal, deal with Samaritans. No, they would. They, they travel around the other side of Jordan sometimes to get out to avoid them. But here's a Samaritan and, and carrying out the good story. There, he go, he goes beyond those, those uh, petty attitudes. Right. All right. So next uh, in our list here, joy. So man, I've been trying to get joy. I bought a brand new car. I thought that would give me joy. You know, I I, I put on a bigger addition on my house than my neighbor did. I thought that would bring me joy, but then he put on a bigger one yet. Um, I, I I keep posting my pictures of my vacations on Facebook, and then somebody else got more likes than I did. Why don't I have joy? <laughs> By the way, I didn't do those three things, but there's a lot of people looking where does, where does joy come from? And what's a, what's, a, what's a good place in the Bible to look to learn about how to have joy? Philippians. Tell us about it. Well, uh, Philippians is written by the Apostle Paul when he does not have personal freedom. He is uh, in custody in Rome. Um, not on vacation. Not on vacation. You know, Drew just got back from Italy. It, Drew, did you go to Rome? Yes, I was in Rome. And so, so that was a lot of fun, right? Enjoyed it very much. And so the Apostle Paul, he, he's in Rome. <laughs> yeah, but he was in a different circumstance. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he got there as a prisoner being carried there on a ship and had a shipwreck on the way and then finally got there and is under, the, under guard of soldiers while he waits for his case to be heard before the emperor. And he writes this letter to the Philippians and it's the most joyful sounding of his letters, I suppose, there, there is. Chapter 3, verse 1. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. Uh, to write the same things to you, to me indeed, is not irksome. Um, and then in chapter 4, verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. And then he says in chapter 10, as he thanks them for the fact that they've sent to take care of his, his material needs, he says, uh, I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your thought for me, wherein you did indeed take thought, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak in respect of want or lack, that is, for I've learned in whatsoever state I am therein to be content. I know how to be abased, and I know also how to abound. In everything and in all things, I have learned the secret both to be filled and to be hungry, both to abound and to be in want. Well, so what was that secret? What was it? Well, obviously, his confidence was not in his temporal circumstances, but his confidence was in his relationship with God through Jesus Christ, his hope of an eternal reward, so that even as he came to the end of his life and writes to Timothy in Second Timothy, the second chapter, he can talk about uh, the expectation that he has of receiving that reward. 
Very good. John? Uh, I was going to ask the question if you guys um, talk about it. So then what would be the difference in um, having joy and having happiness? Joy is a three-letter word. Happiness. <laughs> it really depends on how you define those words. No. Happy. No. There, there, there's some splares. And happy is a word that, that could be used to translate in the Beatitudes, where we usually say blessed. It's a word that could as well be translated mm-hmm. happy. And you look at what it says, though, and it's, it's often not what people associate with happiness. Right. Matthew chapter 5 Blessed or happy are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed or happy are they that mourn. There's a relationship etymologically between the word happy and happen. Um, And so if our concept of happy is happiness that results from things that happen around me, that's going to be a superficial happiness. Right. It can go away when bad things happen. And Jesus was talking about a happiness that I can have even as I am mourning my sin or a happiness that I can have uh, even when I'm being persecuted. He gets down to talk about happy or blessed for those who are persecuted. Um, it's a happiness that's not dependent upon what happens to me in a temporal way, but it's a happiness that's rooted in who I am in relationship to my creator. And that's a more profound joy. Also, how we choose to look at things, and Jeff, Jeff alluded to this as he was talking about Philippians. In Philippians chapter 1, starting verse 12, Paul's letting the Philippians know, listen, I, things are going well. Now, not everything's going well. He lists three problems. He's a prisoner. Uh, some people are, that should be defending him are trying to cause him trouble and cause strife, and he may be executed. Those are things that could happen to you that are not pleasant. But in each one, he chooses to look at the eternal rather than the temporary and the positive rather than the negative. So he ends up with saying, I want you to know things have turned out for the progress of the gospel. Yes, he's a prisoner, but what's two benefits, uh, verse 13 and 14, that have come from his being a prisoner? He literally has a captive audience. He's chained up to some guards that can't get away from him if they wanted to. And, so he and, can tell them about Jesus. The, the news of the gospel is is uh, reaching the, the Praetorian Guard. What's another benefit that's come from his being a prisoner? Even First people point. in even people in Caesar's household have become Christians. Is that what you're talking about? Uh, no, that's in chapter four, verse fourteen. It's that it has encouraged other brethren to preach the gospel more. Mm. Then problem number two: some are doing it out of envy and strife. But he says, you know, I'm going to rejoice that other people are hearing about Christ. That's in verse 18. Then they may kill me. And what does he choose to rejoice in there? If they do? He'll be with the Lord. He'll be with the Lord. Yeah. And, and he says, I'm in a straight between the two. Having the, he would like to keep helping them, but it would be more pleasant to go be with the Lord. Notice the mental attitude here. You can choose lose-lose or win-win. What if Paul had this attitude? Oh, no, if they kill me, I won't get to help the Philippians. Oh, no, if they don't kill me, I won't get to be with the Lord. Bummer, bummer. Instead, he looks at, hey, if they don't kill me, I'll get to keep working with you. If they do kill me, I'll get to go be with the Lord. So he he approaches things optimistically, but it's not simply optimistically. He's focusing on what's eternal and of value, the chain that's grounded. That's temporary. The insult, that's temporary. 
the execution. It's going to be over very quickly. But he's looking at what lasts. And there's a verse in, in 2 Corinthians 4 where Paul demonstrates why he's able to look at things the way he does. After that section of saying we're pressed on every side, et cetera, et cetera, why does he say he doesn't faint there toward the end of 2 Corinthians 4? Because though our outer self is fading away, our inner self is being renewed, and the the joy that's to come is incomparable with the pain in this life. I'm paraphrasing, but maybe we could read it. But Yeah, look at what he says he looks at. This is really significant. Yeah. So verse 16 of Second Corinthians 4, So we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing us for the eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. It makes a difference what you're looking at. He's looking at the souls of the guard. He's looking at the gospel as being spread. He's looking at, I'll get to go be with the Lord. And so one last verse on this, and we'll move forward. Look at Philippians 4, 8. Uh, four nine. What does he tell them to think about? He's demonstrated in chapter one, and now he tells them to do it in chapter four. What type of things should they be thinking about? He says things that are true and honorable and just and pure and lovely and commendable and anything that has excellence, anything worthy of praise. Yeah, and that's going to make you a more joyous person. All right, peace. And we can, Philippians 4 is going to help us on this also. From Philippians 4, how can we have peace? That's the, in our, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. You know, um, before we, uh, I started to say before we turn to the scriptures, obviously the scriptures, are, but there's a phrase on my mind from a song we sang Sunday. Uh, peace we seek, but peace must be Lord in being one with thee. And I'm not sure I got that exactly right, but there are very few people that I know, I'm not sure I know anyone who, who wants to have a life that does, isn't characterized by peace. Everybody would like to have peace, a peaceful life. But that song gets it right. Uh, we must be at peace with God, and that's going to be the foundation of peace in our lives in every aspect of our life. James 4 talks about, or James 3 talks about first pure, then peaceful. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, just to illustrate, in, in the book of Ephesians, the, the, in focus is the um, really, you could say, racial tension between Jews and Gentiles in the first century. And he talks about how they are brought together in one body. Yep. But it's not just, hey, you people be at peace with you people. It's you people and you people can be at peace together because you're both at peace with God through Jesus Christ. Right. And so... Uh, the, the wall that separated Jews from Gentiles in the temple environments in Jerusalem is used as a, uh, as a, a, a means of communicating or, or highlighting this separation between Jews and Gentiles. And it talks about how, how in Christ that distinction is obliterated. Verse 15, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances, that he might create in himself of the two, of Jew and Gentile, one new man so making peace and might reconcile them both in one body unto God through the cross, having slain the enmity thereby. And it goes on and develops that thought further. 
but it illustrates this idea. If I want to be at peace with my fellow man, both of us need to be at peace with God. Paul in Romans, the 12th chapter, verse 18 says to Christians, as much as in you lieth, be at peace with all men. In other words, true, there's some people who aren't going to want to be at peace with you and they're not going to be. But as far as your part is concerned, you need to be willing to be and ready to be at peace with everyone. Yeah, even kind to your enemies. Philippians 4, 4 through 8, it ends with, or 4 through 7, it ends with the statement that you can receive the peace that passes understanding. There's four or five uh, keys in there that you need to do if you want to have this peace that passes understanding he's talking about. What are they? Starting in verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Yeah. Yeah. Rejoice. And notice other things can be taken from you. Your, your, your health, you can lose. Your youth, you can use. Your money, you can lose. Uh, your, your spouse, you can lose. Other things can be taken. Your life, you will eventually lose. The one thing they couldn't take away from Paul was rejoice the Lord. Okay. What's the next instruction in there? Your reasonableness, in verse four, mine says, your, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Okay. How My translation says forbearance. Okay, that's better. Uh, look at what Paul's doing. You know, he's, he's forbearing. And then what's the next thing? Not to be anxious about anything. Right. Um, planning is a good thing. There's good examples in the Bible of planning. But just straight up worrying, worrying and fretting about things that you can't do anything about, does that ever solve a problem? No. In fact, we're instructed not to worry at all for tomorrow. Right, right. right. It says right here, in nothing be anxious. And if you if you if you let yourself stay worrying, be anxious, you're not going to have peace. Mm-hmm. Don't be anxious. But somebody says, Yeah, but something bad might happen and I can't control this. Well, go to the next thing. What does he say? Prayer and supplication. Request to God. Yeah, if you can't take care of it, if it's out of your control, turn it over to the one who can and who knows what's needed in the long run. So take your request to God. With what? Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving. Uh, And I always remember the song, Count Your Many Blessings. When upon life's billows you are... Just tossed. And you are discouraged, thinking... All is lost. Count your... Many blessings. Many blessings. Name them one by one. And it will surprise you what the Lord has done. So don't be anxious. Go to the Lord with your request, but do it with thanksgiving, remembering all the things you've already got. And if you do these things, what does verse 7 say? Peace of God, which passes understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds. Yeah. So love, joy, peace. Let's go on to long suffering. We're going to need to do these more quickly here. Who's a good example of long suffering in the Bible? Uh, we already talked about Paul being in prison. And I, don't th- I don't know if you mentioned it, Jeff, but he was in prison for two years first when he was in Jerusalem, right? Caesarea. Uh, so well, arrested in Jerusalem. Arrested in Jerusalem. Then taken and, and then into Caesarea, two years in prison there. And then when he went to Rome, he was under guard all the way going to Rome. So he was never a free man after that. And then how many years was he in prison in Rome? That was another two. We don't know for sure, but at the end of Acts, he's been there for two years. Yep. Yep. So he was under guard. Uh, so that was his position. That was his life. But that's a good example there. Yeah, long suffering. Very good. 
kindness. Some biblical examples of kindness. Uh, Acts chapter 9, um, there is a woman who has died. Her name is Tabitha or Dorcas, and she is sorely missed. Uh, when Peter comes in verse 37, uh, it came to pass in those days she fell sick and died, and when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper chamber. And as Lydda was nigh unto Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men unto him, entreating him, the lay not to come on unto us. And Peter arose and went with them. And when he was come, they brought him into the upper chamber, and all the widows stood by him, weeping and showing the coats and garments which Dorcas made while she was with them. Here's a woman who was dearly missed, and you see why. She had been very kind. Yeah. And kindness means some sacrifice. But can't you imagine that being kind to these widows was meaningful to Dorcas? Sure. There there would have been, through her acts of love, she would have had joy and peace in in being able to do this. Who doesn't feel good when doing something for somebody else and seeing them appreciate it and how much pleasure they take in it or how grateful they are? Who doesn't find joy in that? Yeah. Um, you know, this, I've, I've got an illustration. If we make it through the list, I want to come back to it. And Jeff, it has to do with when you were teaching me how to ski up at Mount Snow, but I don't want to get into it unless we have time, but there, it, it has, that would, to, that would be mocking. <laughs> it has to do with learning to submit yourself to what's counterintuitive instead of just trying to do what you think is going to make you happy. Oh, okay, yeah. Dorcas, she she's serving other people, and it meant a great deal to other people, and it would have meant a lot to her too. It's it's, it's rewarding. We'll we'll talk about that if we have time. All right. Um, goodness. Who's an example? A lot of examples, but who comes to your mind? Uh, and what can we learn from just an example of goodness? Well, Jesus said, "Who is good but one?" So ultimately, God is the standard of goodness, and then we look right. at God's love for us, and, then, and we can see goodness. If we, and this is the point of the work of the fruit of the Spirit. God is good. And if, if we are walking in the Spirit, if we, are, uh, if we are taking our lives and molding them in accordance with God, with God's will, then that goodness is going to be reflected in us. And yeah, so, and God starting with people that are not good. Mm-hmm. All we like sheep have gone astray, every one of us to his own way. God laid on him the iniquity of us all. And he calls us out of this darkness, out of the, by nature, we were what in Ephesians 2? Children of wrath. Yeah, yeah. And God calls us out, cleans us up, and, and, and gives us these beautiful things to walk in. And then, uh, so for, say from either New Testament or Old Testament, it was just a real good example of somebody that's just good. Well, um, <laughs> Barnabas, there you yeah. go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I feel foolish sitting here trying to come up with a name. There's a lot of good examples, but Barnabas certainly. Uh, give us three, three things in particular Barnabas did quickly. Well, one, we first meet him because he is among those who are selling property and taking the proceeds of the property and laying it at the apostles' feet so that provision can be made for people who have nothing. And so that's in Acts the fourth chapter in verse 36. And in connection with that, we're told that the apostles named him 
Barnabas, which means son of exhortation or son of consolation. In other words, this guy was the kind of guy being around him was just uplifting. And so they yeah. they a name that indicated that. Yeah. Another example of Barnabas's goodness. Well, again, in Acts the ninth chapter, uh, when Paul has become a Christian, but most recently he's been a persecutor of Christians. And so when he comes to Jerusalem and wants to join himself to the disciples there, and they're reluctant to receive him because they're afraid he's not really a disciple of Jesus Christ, uh, Barnabas, in verse 27, took him and brought him to the apostles and declared unto them how he had seen the Lord in the way and that he had spoken to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. I'll make this quick observation. It's, it's a person who cannot see good in anyone else is sometimes a person who can't see good in anyone else because he doesn't see any good in himself. Yes. Uh, but a person yeah. who is a good person uh, can see good in other people. And Barnabas, he could see good in Paul. He could give, he could be optimistic and believe the best about Paul. Part in, in 1 Corinthians 13, as Paul talks about love, love believes all things, hopes all things. Love is optimistic. I'm looking here in Acts eleven twenty four. It just says he was a good man. This is when the Gentile church has gotten started up in Antioch of Syria. The report comes to the church of Jerusalem. They send forth Barnabas. Verse 23, when he was come and saw the grace of God, he was glad. He exhorted them all that with purpose of heart, they would cleave unto the Lord. For he was a good man and full of the Holy Spirit. In nice. faith. All right. All right. So what's our next thing in the fruits of the Spirit here? Ah, gotcha. Fruit. Fruit. <laughs> Sorry. In the fruit of the Spirit. After goodness, we got faithfulness. Give me a quick example of faithfulness. An example by a person, you mean? Yeah, and we're starting to run out of time. So, kind of Moses crazy. was faithful in all God's house. It says in Hebrews, the 11th chapter, and I believe it's about verse 5. And Jesus is said to be faithful over God's house. But you think about Moses and uh, his doing what God uh, called upon him to do and leading a people who were a difficult people to lead throughout 40 years in the wilderness. And um, Moses... He wasn't perfect. We know he didn't get to go into the promised land on account of a mistake he made, but he persisted in doing the Lord's will, was faithful in that work. And think how important it is to be faithful when it's difficult. There's a verse in Proverbs that says, if you faint in the day of adversity, your strength indeed is small. If I'm selling a used car and you guys say, oh, Scott, you know, how much you want for it? I said, I'll sell it to you cheap. You know, well, tell me about it. I said, well, it runs real well as long as you're going downhill. <laughs> it won't make it up a hill, but as long as you're going down, that's a useless vehicle. That's not a faithful car. Yeah, that's not a faithful car. It, it, what does Satan think about Job? He's only doing right because things are good. Yeah. But what does he find out about Job? No, Job's going to keep doing right, even when it's not good. So if we look when everything's going our way and we're doing right, that doesn't prove anything. We need to be like Joseph, faithful when things aren't going well. Yeah, Joseph's a good example of faithfulness. Yeah. All right, self-control. Skip gentleness. Oh, gentleness, gentleness, yeah. Um, meekness, gentleness. Give me an um, example with of meekness. With that, there's a, a comment that covers uh, gentleness by uh, Abigail in the Old Testament uh, in First Samuel. 
Um, she's actually an example, this comment says, um, from TJ, that she's an example of many different uh, fruit of the Spirit. Um, so she's an example of gentleness and that she's wise with her words towards David um, with good intuition, knowing what would ease his temper. But she's also an example of peace by bridging the gap between David and Nabal. She's an example of kindness um, by uh, being generous to David with the gifts. She's an example of long suffering um, because she knew the, that Nabal, you know, fit his name. And uh, she says, who knows how long they'd been married. Um, so um, she's an example of a lot of the fruit of the spirit. She, she's my favorite example of being a peacemaker. Uh, Jesus himself, on meekness, Jesus said, for I am meek and lowly. And somebody just read for us that passage, that beautiful passage from Philippians 2 uh, that illustrates the humility and meekness here of Jesus. Starting in verse 5, have this mind in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Well, let, let's actually back up a little bit. Um, uh, I'm going to go all the way to verse 1. It's important. If there's, any, if there's therefore any exhortation in Christ, any consolation of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any tender mercies and compassions, make full my joy that you be of the same mind, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind, doing nothing through faction or through vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, each counting other better than himself, not looking each of you to his own things, but each of you also to the things of others. Have this mind in you, which was also in Christ Jesus who existing in the form of God, counted not the being on an equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being made in likeness of men, and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself, becoming obedient even unto death, yea, the death of the cross. Yeah. I think, right. of, I think of the centurion, uh, Scott, I think of the centurion also, who was very, a powerful man, right? Ruler, yeah. over, uh, commander. And yet he said he wasn't worthy to have Jesus even come to his under his roof. Just say the word, Lord, and my servant will be sealed. I think that's a sign of... of yeah, yeah. All right, one more. Self-control, and leave me about four minutes at the end. I want to give an illustration to kind of uh, bring out something here at the end. Uh, self-control. <clears throat> what does Paul say about self-control in 1 Corinthians 9? In 1 Corinthians 9, Paul makes the point that he has to, uh, as it says, buffet his body daily. It's in a context where he's been exhorting the Corinthians uh, to do the right thing. And, um, and I'll read it. 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 20, 25. Every man that strives in the games exercises self-control in all things. Uh, if you're an athlete, you can't just eat anything you want. Uh, do anything you want, whenever you want. Uh, you have to bring your body into a state of self discipline, training, and right. take self control. So Paul says, "I therefore so run is not uncertainly, so fight I is not beating there, but I buffet my body and bring it into bondage, lest by any means after that I have preached to others, I myself should be rejected." But that's that means I can't just do whatever I feel like doing. I can't just do whatever I want to do. I have to bring my my life, my body, into subjection to the will of God. That's, that's what it means to walk in the Spirit. Yeah, yeah. All right, so we've got time for this illustration, and, and I want to share it. And, and I want to first illustrate why the concept is important. Jeff mentioned, who doesn't want peace in their life? 
Like if you just look at this list here, would most people, even if they're living ungodly life, even if they're doing a bunch of the things in the first list, the works of the flesh, would they like to have a life of love and joy and peace? Yes, they would. But they're pursuing things that are counterproductive to that. One of the reasons one of the reasons that a lot of people don't submit their life to Christ and don't surrender to him, and it needs to be an unconditional surrender, is because they think they won't be happy if they follow the rules and teachings of Christ. They think, oh, I would have to stop doing things that I want to do, and I would have to do things that I don't want to do, and I would be miserable and unhappy, and so they won't submit. So here's this analogy, and it goes back to Mount Snow. You'll remember this, Jeff. I do. So Jeff knows how to ski. This is like early 80s. No, mid-80s, late 80s. Jeff knows how to ski. I don't. I've never gone ski. Uh, but he says, I'm going to take you to Mount Snow, and there's a beginner trail from the summit, which is kind of unusual. And we, both, we had Bible studies that day, so we didn't have the whole day. And so we had limited time. We got there, and Jeff said, Scott, do you want to go over to the bunny slope and, and, and learn down there? I said, no, let's just go to the summit and I'll learn how from the summit. So up, we jump on quickly, a lift, and we're going up the mountain. Do you remember what happened, Jeff? Yeah, uh, it wasn't a beginner trail. Yeah, yeah, we got on the wrong lift. It didn't go all the way to the summit. It went a mile up. We're a mile from the, the lodge, but we're not to the summit this wanting the lift that went to the summit and it dumps us off and there's no beginner trail. You know, the easiest thing there is intermediate. I've never skied. And, and it's a series of kind of flat and then dropping kind of flat, dropping, kind of flat, dropping. And it's also icy. Yeah. Okay. Go ahead and on down. Then I'll go. Jeff goes down here. He goes long and he comes down. He's fine. He's down here. I come. I said, watch out. I go down. My ski split. I hit the ice. I come up bloody. Uh, eventually, they sent a body bag after me. Um, it was, I bit my ski, my ski pole. I hit myself in the head with a ski, all kind of stuff. And what kept happening, I was okay on this part. But when I got to the steep part, Jeff kept telling me what to do. Go across it and then turn and go across it. But on the turn, Jeff's telling me to lean down the mountain. That's counterintuitive to me. Let me see how much time we got here. Three minutes. That's counterintuitive. I know how to water ski. In water skiing, if I want to turn right, what do I do? Lean right. I ride a motorcycle. How do I steer a motorcycle? If I want to go right, I lean right. I'm going along this, this steep part up here on the mountain, going along the side. Now i got to turn. And Jeff's telling me to lean down the way I don't want to go. There was a sign when we got there that said six people were killed in Vermont last year. You know, because they're smashing into trees. I don't want to lean down there. I want to lean to the right because I want to go this way. And Jeff keeps telling me that's not the way to do it. You need to lean the other way. I keep not doing it. It doesn't work. So then I flop down and slide down. I get to the next one. Repeat, rinse, repeat, rinse, repeat. Finally, I gave up. And I listened to what Jeff was saying. It seemed counterintuitive. I did not want to lean down the hill, but because of the way the skis are, when you're in a little bit of a snowplow, by leaning down the hill, it's this ski that catches the snow. And guess what? I went the right way. 
So now they come with the body bag for me, but by now I know how to do it and I made it down the mountain. But you know, I would have not gotten beat up so bad if I would have listened to Jeff from the beginning. But it seemed counterintuitive. And how much is that what so many times we can do with the Lord? The Lord says, put God first. You know, love your neighbor as yourself. Think about what's good for other people. And we think what? But but then I wouldn't get what I want. And we keep trying to insist on getting what we want. And we beat ourselves up. It's the very fundamental idea of, of recognizing that God is the one who made us and he's greater than we are and he knows what's good for us. Until I understand that and yield, therefore, to his will, I'm not going to have peace. I'm not going to have joy. I'm not going to have the fruit of the spirit in my life. Yeah, so we not, need not thoroughly. We need to yield. Here comes the seed. The sower sows the seed. We need to bear fruit. We need to receive with meekness the implanted work and do it, and then enjoy the paradoxes. He that exalts himself is going to be humbled. He that humbles himself is going to be exalted. The first is going to be last, but the last is going to be first. If you seek your life, you're going to lose. But if you give it up, you gain it to life eternal. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, that was perfect timing, and I I love that illustration. Have you ever gone skiing since? Yeah, yeah. Oh, great, great, great. I ended up bloody and bent up my poles and everything on the other times. One thing that made that a little difficult, he had borrowed skis and they were borrowed from a guy who was about six foot seven or six foot eight. In other words, they were really super long skis. I think they were 210 or 220 centimeters, something like ridiculous like that. And anybody who skis knows that the longer your skis are, the the faster you're going to go. And so beginner typically wants shorter skis. And th- those were the wrong skis for you to be on that first time out coming down that trail. And it was, and I wasn't listening when I, when I started listening, even though it was icy, even though they were long skis, it didn't work. Guys, thanks everybody. Yeah. Thanks for, for all of that. Thank you for everyone that joined us today on the program. And we look forward to seeing everyone next week, Tuesday, same time.